there is a tension in our faith. There are elements that seem opposed to each other. But at a closer look, we see the tension doesn't pull them apart. It holds them together. These sides are not in debate, but dialogue. Faith expands as we embrace the tension. Explore the paradox. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And um, occasionally someone will ask, what translation of the Bible do I teach from? I preach from, I preach from the New Living Translation. And the reason I chose that translation is because I believe that it is the most readable, accurate translation. I believe it's an accurate translation, and it's also very readable. And so if you're looking for a translation of God's Word that you can open up and read and understand, I believe it's a good one. Romans chapter 10. I've discovered that life is all about the choices that we have and how we respond to those choices. 38 years ago, I decided to come home for the weekend from college. And while I was there that weekend, I went to a youth event on Sunday night at my church. And, and I saw this pretty little girl. Her name was Sherry. And we began to talk. And on that Sunday night before I left to go back to college, I asked her if she would write me. And she did. She wrote me a letter, not an email. We didn't have email back then. She didn't text me. We didn't have cell phones back then. She wrote me a letter, put a stamp on it, and mailed it. In that letter, she asked me if I wanted to go to the football game out of our hometown that weekend. Well, I got the letter probably on Wednesday or so. I didn't respond. But I decided that, yes, I'm going to go home and go to the football game with her. So I came home on Friday. Little did I know that because I did not respond to her, she made other plans. She was asked out by the president of the student body. And so she went to the football game with the president of the student body instead of me. And so she was there with a date. I was there by myself. And at halftime, I was standing there at the fence talking to some people when she walked down from the stands where she was sitting with her date, and she began to talk to me. And she asked me if I wanted to come over to her house after the game. And I said, well, you're on a date. And she said, well, he has to go home. And so I said, well, sure, I will go over to your house. She asked, and I responded. I went to her house that night, and, and I was knocking on the door. Her parents were home. I was knocking on the door when her date brought her home. Talk about awkward. A little awkward. So I rushed in as quick as I could get in, and, and we talked, and we played cards, and we had fun, and and I made a decision that night. I made a decision that I wanted to ask this girl out on a date. So I asked her out on a date, and she responded. She said yes. And so that next night, on Saturday night, we went on a date. We went to 
the steakhouse in Florence, South Carolina, and we went to a movie, and, and um, I am so glad that when I asked her out, she responded. She said yes. About 15 months later, she was at my parents' house, and, and um, my parents had a candy jar there on the table of their kitchen table, and I asked her to get me a piece of candy. And when she opened the candy jar, there was an engagement ring in there. I know that is so hokey, so corny. Don't do it that way. It was awful. There was no romance there. And my best friend was there. It was just, it was, it was terrible, terrible. But when I asked her to marry me, she said yes. About eight months later, we were standing before our pastor, my dad, with our friends and our family there, and, and we repeated these vows that he said. We said yes. We responded. And our decisions, our choices to respond have changed everything in our life. But what I want you to understand this morning is this. The decisions and the choices that we make about God and for God will change our life. Not only in the here and now, but for all eternity. We're in a three-part series on on. Romans 9, 10, and 11, some of the most difficult, some of the most challenging chapters in the entire Word of God. There's a lot of debate that goes on about these chapters. There's a lot of division that goes on about these chapters. And the reason is, is because these chapters are difficult to understand. They deal with two truths that, that seem to be in tension with one another. You see, these chapters talk about the sovereignty of God this whole idea that God is sovereign God is in control of human history God has no equal God has no rival God can do anything God wants to do did you know that I mean you need to understand right here right now don't leave this room without understanding God's God and you're not and God can do whatever God wants to do and God has chosen to use people to accomplish his sovereign purposes on planet earth and so these chapters talk about God's sovereignty but these chapters also talk about man's free will and our responsibility to God in chapter 10 we, we read phrases like all who believe anyone who trusts everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved choices free will responsibility when we get to the end of chapter 10 we read that God's arms are open wide and yet the people are stubborn and rebellious choices decisions responsibility chapter 9 focuses primarily on God's sovereignty but I believe chapter 10 focuses primarily on our choices our decisions our responsibility and as you read chapter 10 you discover that there are some people who refuse who reject the message of God's love and you discover that there are other people who receive God's love and their lives are forever changed now here's what you need to understand as we look at chapter 10 chapter 10 
has a word for each and every one of us regardless of where we are in our spiritual journey we may be saved we may have been walking with Jesus for years and years there's a word for us or we may be here today and we're kicking the tires we're searching we're seeking out truth we want to know what the Bible says about salvation well there's a word for you and even if you came here this morning kicking and screaming and you have no desire to give your life to Jesus I believe there is even a word for you and so I want us to unpack this chapter this morning the first thing I want us to do is see a problem a problem that keeps everyone from experiencing eternal life and understand when we start chapter 10 Paul is addressing the Jew just like he did in chapter 9 the truth of the matter is if you read chapters 9 10 and 11 together you will discover that Paul is primarily ad addressing the Jew in chapter 9 he's addressing the election of the Jew how the Jews were chosen by God to be his chosen people in chapter 10 you discover the rejection of the Jew how the Jews rejected God and in chapter 11 we discover that there's coming a day where the Jews will be converted when they will turn back to God but in the midst of this message that is given to the Jew there is a message to each and every one of us and so Paul begins this by talking to the Jew and he says in verse 2 and following I know what enthusiasm they have for God but it is misdirected zeal for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself refusing that's an important word refusing to accept God's way they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law for Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right verse 5 with God requires obedience to all of its commands now verse 2 says that these people were enthusiastic they were zealous for God that word comes from a Greek word that literally means hot in other words these people were hot they were on fire for God but the problem was their passion for God was misdirected in their desire to please God we discovered that they missed God altogether and because of that they were lost because of that they were headed to hell did you know that there are people all over the world religious people who are passionate about God but their passion is misdirected and they're headed to hell I mean the Jews the Hindus the Muslim Buddhist religious people all over the world who are zealous for what they believe but in their zeal for God they are looking in the wrong direction and they're headed to hell but did you know that there are also many Christians today people who call themselves Christians who are passionate for God they call themselves Christians and yet their passion is misdirected and they've missed God altogether and you're probably asking how can that be how can a person who calls himself a Christian have a passion for God and yet miss God altogether here's how you see these Jews believed that they were made right with God by their own efforts and there are many people today who call themselves Christians who believe that 
They are made right with God by their own efforts. If I check enough boxes off, then I'm going to go to heaven. They believed that if they were going to go to heaven, it was up to them. And listen, that's the problem. I want you to hear me. Most people aren't going to miss heaven because they think they are too bad. Most people are going to miss heaven because they think they are too good. Did you hear me? You see, people don't miss heaven because they think they're too bad to get in. People miss heaven because they think they're good enough to get in. And the Bible says that none of us are good enough. You see, in America especially, the problem that's keeping us from heaven is not our ignorance. It is our self-righteousness. We have this idea that if we are good enough, if we help enough people, if we give enough money, if we go to church enough times, then we will go to heaven. But the Bible says that none of us will ever be good enough to go to heaven on our own. When we stand before God, God's not going to pull out a scale and see if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. That's not what's going to happen. The only way that you and I can ever get to heaven is by living a perfect life if we want to get to heaven on our own. That's what Paul says. In, in verse 5, he says that we must be obedient to all of God's commands. If you want to get to heaven by your goodness, by what you do, then you must be obedient to every single one of God's commands every single hour of your life. In James chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all the law. One lie, one lustful thought, one selfish act, one greedy act, one angry outburst, and you're lost forever. It only takes one mess up. It only takes one blowing it for you to be lost forever for you to miss heaven for you to miss eternity you see self-righteousness cannot earn your place in heaven that's why the Bible says in the book of Isaiah all our righteousness is but filthy rags in other words the very best that we have to offer up to God is like a filthy dirty rag Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 verse 11 it is clear that no one absolutely no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law no one will be good enough no one is committed enough to get to heaven by their good deeds and so that leads me to the second point if the problem that keeps us from eternal life is most often we think we're good enough to get there on our own then how do we get there well, the second truth is the person that gives eternal life. And we see that in verse 4. It says, For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. You see, eternal life is not found in what we can do. Eternal life is found in what Jesus has already done. Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done 
to provide salvation. He gave up his home in heaven, was born a baby. He grew up and he taught incredible truths. He healed the sick. He cared for hurting people. But the thing that separated him from every other person who ever lived was he never sinned. He lived a perfect life. Jesus perfectly kept the law. And then Jesus died an agonizing death on the cross to pay for the sins of the world, to pay for your sin, to pay for my sin. But Jesus didn't stay dead. The Bible tells us that on that third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Death could not defeat Jesus. The grave could not hold Jesus. Sin could not overcome Jesus. Jesus died for our sin. He was raised again so that we could be justified by God. And that is the gospel. That is the good news. You're not saved by what you do. You're not saved by the life you live. You're not saved by how often you come to church. You're not saved by how much money you give. You are saved because Jesus Christ came to this earth. He died on the cross for your sins, and he rose from the grave defeating sin and death. You see, the law says, do this and you will live. The gospel says, it's already been done. The law says, pay me what you owe me. The gospel says, I freely forgive each and every one of you. The law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The gospel says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loves us and sent his son as the sacrifice for our sin. The law says, the wages of sin is death. The gospel says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law demands holiness. The gospel provides holiness. The law makes blessings the result of obedience. Grace makes obedience the result of blessings. So look at me this morning. Listen to what I'm saying. You cannot be saved by what you do. The only way you can be saved is by trusting in what Jesus Christ has already done. And so that leads us to the third truth we see in this passage, and that's this. The promise of eternal life. Listen to what it says beginning in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that, that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you were made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you were saved as the scriptures tell us anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect they have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved now notice how verse 9 starts it starts with that little word if that word is a conditional particle. It implies choice. You see, in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us, each and every one of us have a choice to make. What am I going to do with what Jesus has already done? You see, Jesus' death paid the price 
for our sin. Jesus' death purchased a home for us in heaven, but it doesn't guarantee that you will ever have it. Because even though he has paid for it, he has given us that gift, the gift must be received. And the Bible says the way that we receive it is we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart. There is both an internal and an external response that each and every one of us must make if we want to receive the promise of eternal life. The first thing Paul says we've got to do is we've got to believe. Now what does that mean? Well, well certainly there are some truths that we need to know to be saved. We need to know that Jesus came to this earth and he died on the cross to pay for our sins. You can't be saved without knowing that truth. And you have to know that Jesus Christ defeated death. He defeated sin by being resurrected from the grave. So you have to know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You have to know that he defeated sin and death by being resurrected from the grave. But I want you to listen. Those are the only two truths that you have to know to be saved. You don't have to know any other truths about God, about the Bible to be saved. Now when you get saved and you get into God's Word, you're going to learn a lot of other truths about God, about life, about how to live in victory on this planet. But the only two truths you need to know to be saved is Jesus died for your sins and Jesus defeated sin and death by being resurrected from the grave but listen belief isn't just knowing truth belief isn't just knowing facts James said you believe that there is one God great the devils also believe and tremble the demons of hell believe in Jesus now notice what Paul said here he didn't say that you believe with your head your mind he said, you believe with your heart. Now, now, why is that? Here's what I believe. You see, our mind, our head controls knowledge. But our heart controls action. You can believe something with your head. You can believe it's true and never act on it. But if you believe it with your heart, it changes what you do. 38 years ago, I saw Sherry, and I said, that's a pretty girl. And I knew that. My head looked at her, and my head could figure out she's pretty. But it wasn't until my heart got involved that I was moved to action, and I asked her out on a date. You see, there are some of you some of you young people, guys, look at me. Some of you young people, you know that this girl that you like's pretty. You know it with your head, but you haven't figured it out with your heart yet. You haven't acted on it. You haven't asked her out. And I'm here to tell you that nothing's ever going to happen until you act on it. And that's what happens with the gospel. You see, it's not until I act on the knowledge I have that my life is going to be changed. I've got to believe with 
my heart. And when I believe with my heart, everything changes. But notice the next thing he says. He says that I have to confess. I have to confess with my mouth. You see, true believing always results in confessing. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, faith is a private thing? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Raise your hand if you've heard somebody say, faith is a private matter. Uh, who came up with that? It's not in the Bible. Can I tell you who came up with faith is a private matter? The devil. He's the one who came up with it. Nowhere can you find in Scripture that faith is a private matter. The Bible says we believe with our heart and we confess with our mouth if we are saved. Here's what I know. I know faith is the root of salvation, but confessing is the fruit of salvation. Faith through grace brings salvation, but fruit is always the result of salvation. If I've truly been saved, there will be fruit in my life. Listen to me. I want you to look at me. You can sit there in that chair and pray a prayer a hundred thousand times. And if you never do anything with that prayer you prayed, you're not saved. It's not until your faith takes action that the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life. Faith may be the spark, but confession lights the fire. When we believe with our heart and we confess, with our mouth the Holy Spirit comes into our life and we are saved in Matthew 10 Jesus said this he said whoever therefore shall confess me before men I will confess before my father but whoever shall deny me before men I will deny before my father which is in heaven now what do you have to do to confess to confess you have to say something you have to do something what do you have to do to deny? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You see, and that's the problem with what some of you believe about salvation. You think just because you prayed some prayer and that prayer has never done anything to change your life, you're saved and you're going to heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there has to be a belief that stirs the heart that results in confession that comes out of the mouth. Now, what do we confess?